The negative headlines are coming fast and furious. It's hard to escape the daily onslaught of concerning developments on everything from geopolitics to the economic growth picture. And while commercial real estate markets certainly offer opportunities, they are not immune, bringing real questions about capital deployment to the forefront of investors' minds. As time passes, as debt maturities emerge, as sellers adjust price expectations, we think that there'll be more transaction opportunity and that the art is to say, when do you find a deal that's really attractive and that you feel like you can make real money on? Um, And you can't wait till you think you've timed the very bottom. I think the market's littered with examples of people trying to time markets. That was John Ockerbloom, co-head of U.S. Real Estate at Barings, And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Barings. I'm your host, Greg Campion. Coming up on the show, is now a time for greed or fear in U.S. commercial real estate? John, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be back. I'm excited to have you. There is so much to talk about, so much going on, so many negative headlines, to be honest. You know, I was actually just reviewing uh, some of the headlines before this conversation, and I was struck by the level of negativity that's out there in the market. And it's coming seemingly from kind of all sides at the moment, right? We've got a crisis brewing in the UK gilt market. We've got the Nord Stream gas pipelines ruptured in the Baltic Sea. We've got hurricanes on the U.S. East Coast. We've even got Apple seeing disappointing uptake of the new iPhone. It's coming from all angles. And of course, that's against a backdrop that we already know is very challenging. Decades high inflation, an incredibly hawkish Fed, uh, rising rates, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, but other than that, though. Other than that, things are things Other are than that, yeah. So other than that, that's yeah. Exactly. That, that's sort of where I come down on that question. But keep well, going. Okay. Okay. So um, high level, it's hard to escape the negativity right now. Let's let's put it that way. Um, and, and I guess where I want to start with you is, I'm curious, all those headlines that I just mentioned. How does that match up or not match up versus what you're actually seeing in your business day to day? And then maybe for our listeners who don't know, it'd be interesting for them to hear about just the size and the scale of your business, um, because I, I think that's kind of important to understand the lens through which you're seeing the, the world of real estate. Great. Um, so I'll speak to the second question first, and then I'll talk about what we're seeing. So um, we in the real estate equity business in the U.S. are about $13 billion of assets using round numbers. We own a little over 100 assets across the country in asset classes as diverse as self-storage, hotel, as well as apartments, retail, industrial, and office, um, which we'll talk about at some length, I guess, today. And so we've got a pretty wide-ranging business that's a representative sampling of the commercial real estate industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. To answer the first question, how consistent are the headlines that you read with what we're seeing? Mm. With the sentiment, pretty consistent. The real estate business is as susceptible as any other industry to perceptions of turbulence, to, I guess, what I would call overreactions in both favorable and unfavorable directions, mm-hmm. um, the latter being uh, the in vogue uh, direction sure. of the day. Yep. 
Um, but real estate is a durable asset class. It's a long-dated asset class. We think in terms of ownership over years and decades, as opposed to hours and minutes. Mm -hmm. So while we want to be responsive, we guard against being reactive. Mm -hmm. uh, and that really is a feature of the real estate industry. But you know, to speak plainly, sentiment is negative, certainly rising rates. Mm -hmm. The rising of the risk-free rate obviously has a meaningful impact on any income-producing asset class. Real estate is an income-producing asset class as well as a value-capturing asset class. So it makes sense that there would be bearish sentiment. The flip side of that for real estate is that we're not a static income stream. We reprice. Hotels reprice every day. Mm -hmm. Apartments mm -hmm. reprice every year. Industrial assets and office assets reprice less frequently. Um, but they do have inflation escalators incorporated into most leases. So the income stream changes favorably sure, over sure. time as well. So it's a mix, but I would say overall, sentiment is negative, sentiment is cautious, and uh, not supported by strong transaction flow. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, if, how that's kind of feeding through in terms of transaction flow. And then I guess if you feel like we're in kind of a price discovery kind of point right now. We are. So I look at it as sort of three phases. Phase one is everything stops. So if you looked in August, August was a very quiet month mm -hmm. for transaction activity in our business. I think pretty quiet month on the debt side of our business. I should mention, I talked about our real estate equity business. Um, we also have a 30 plus billion dollar debt book here at Bearings. Mm -hmm. So we really see a very broad transaction volume where we're a lender and where we're an equity investor. And I think I can speak for both. August was a pretty slow month. The summer was generally speaking pretty slow. Transaction volume was arrested through uh, June, predominantly because of the spiky movement in interest rates and the resulting inability to really price the risk asset. Mm -hmm. So June, July, uh, August were slow. So that's stage one. Everything stops. Stage two is uh, a proliferation of asks without bids. So uh, to use a bond equivalent, a bunch of people want to sell bonds and nobody wants to buy at the mm -hmm. levels that the bids are or that the bonds are offered. We see that now. We've seen a ton of packages from real estate brokers with opportunities coming out into the market to invest in deals that really had been held off through the summer. Um, there is an ask being made. We want to sell this property for X. We want you to invest in this property, a return of Y. A lot of asks being made, not a lot of bids. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that is the discovery mm -hmm. phase. Um, the third phase has yet to transpire. That's the phase where transactions really begin to flow in earnest as a result of predominantly extraneous circumstances, debt maturities. So therefore, an owner has to make a decision, do I refinance this loan? Mm -hmm. Do I make a, a, a principal payment as a part of the refinancing of that loan because I can't refinance without it? Do I commit new capital to a project or do I go ahead and sell at this point? Mm -hmm. Sometimes that becomes involuntary. So that's stage three. We aren't seeing that yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I expect that it will come um, over time. And the real question is how long uh, before that happens, how significant will it be when it does, and how enduring. So it's an interesting period. Yeah. So it seems like it's a, almost a little bit of a standoff at the moment in terms of maybe there's a lot of wait and see. Let, let's see how bad this thing really gets. Let's see if inflation gets under control. Let's see um, 
you know, how aggressive the Fed needs to continue to be, for how long, all the geopolitical risks uh, out there, how that factors into things. So there's a lot of wait and see, it seems to me. Um, it's so, so that's a tricky environment to manage money in, right? Um, and that's kind of what I want to ask you about here is, is if you put yourself in the shoes of a client of bearings, right? So let's say an institutional investor, whether you're a pension fund, insurance mm-hmm. company, endowment, you name it, right? Um, and you're thinking about your allocation to real estate as an asset class. You know, I guess maybe there's three options and I'd be curious, you know, to hear you talk about which one you might advise taking. One is get defensive. So you mentioned uh, the the substantial debt business that Bearings has here. And that's, I should mention also, not just in the US, but in Europe uh, as well. Um, so one is get defensive. Two would be get opportunistic and be looking for, you know, dislocations in the market. And then three would be to be preparing for the worst. And I think about things like distressed assets. So where, so I guess, which which one would you do? Get defensive, be opportunistic or prepare for the worst. Yes. How's that? <laughs> uh, the the uh, So I'll speak to the debt first. I think it's a really interesting time for debt. Yeah. We like being a lender. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you're not short the market, but you have an equity cushion that sits above you. And there is relative illiquidity that is caused by circumstances other than straight supply and demand. So in the bank market, as an example, bank lenders uh, on an annual basis project their balance sheets, right? So let's say that a particular lender has a billion dollars on its books. If they expect that a half of that is going to pay off in a given year in order to stay neutral, they need to lend half a billion dollars in order to, to stay neutral from a balance sheet standpoint. If they want to grow at 10%, they have to lend $600 million. And they make that decision in January 1 of the year, and then they deploy into that period. So all banks made that assumption at the beginning of 2022. What's happened is that very few borrowers have paid back. So in my example, I had a billion-dollar balance sheet at the beginning. I wanted to grow 10%. I did $600 million through the course of the year. Nobody paid me back, and now my balance sheet's a billion six. Mm. And my target was 1.1, so what do I do? Mm. If I'm a bank lender, what I do is I tend to stop lending until I start to see paybacks occurring. And the paybacks aren't occurring because everyone's hoping that rate spikes subside and that there's some normalcy to the market. To some extent, that's self-perpetuating, right? Because as people don't pay back, there's less capacity in the market. And so you have this sort of circular reference. All of that is to say that the banks... Um, and to a lesser extent, other lenders and market participants, their capacity is limited. There's less supply of dollars available to lend. Mm-hmm. And there's more demand for loans. Mm-hmm. That makes for a favorable opportunity for lenders. So in our debt book, you know, we remain open for business. We're cautious. Mm-hmm. You know, we favor deals that have equity, new fresh equity coming into them in asset classes that we like, in geographies that we like. We're able to be very selective. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's really interesting opportunity in debt. Uh, from an equity investment standpoint, I'm trending toward value add, where there is an opportunity, as I mentioned before, to get into assets that maybe we didn't think we could into could get into uh, at values that we find attractive. Okay. Okay. So so let's talk about some of these areas that may be a little bit more opportunistic. And you know, I don't know that there's a clear distinction between, okay, this is defensive, this is opportunistic, et cetera. There may be characteristics of some of these sectors that 
are actually quite um, defensive, um, depending on how you deploy capital. But let's look at some of these sectors. I know that you and the team are looking at places like residential, office, and some you know more specialty areas like self-storage. So why don't we take each of those in turn? Let's talk about residential first, um, something that probably all of our listeners are very well aware of and experience themselves day-to-day, um, you know, with their own mortgages. And so, I, you know, I can say, you know, just looking at mortgage rates uh, this morning, I think the bankrate.com 30-year fixed national average was 6.86%. A year ago today, that was 3.13%. So more than doubled. And if you are in the market considering the purchase of a new home, you are now running the numbers and seeing that that monthly payment that you thought was going to be, pick a number, $2,000 a month is now a $4,000 a month mortgage. Um, that's pretty substantial change. And you know it's not surprising that we've seen a real fall off in uh, mortgage applications uh, along with that. So tell me about how you and the team are thinking about residential right now. And if you do think that that's an area potentially of opportunity. So everything you just laid out is 100% accurate. I think the stat that I saw this morning was that refinance requests are at an all-time low. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's a low since pre-GFC, mm-hmm. but it's low, mm-hmm. uh, whatever that number is. And it makes sense, right? Why are you refinancing now unless you have to? Yep. Right, to get to that voluntary-involuntary discourse that we were talking about earlier. But we like residential. Um, we like apartments. We've liked apartments for a long time. Supply has been strong in many of the markets that we want to operate, but demand has been stronger. And so, you know, if we look at the technology-centric or the STEM-centric markets that we like, predominantly in the Southeast, but in other areas around the United States, that have positive in-migration, positive job growth, positive household formation, and where supply is reasonably contained, that's an area that we like, I would say, that you know, the one challenge that we have in that area is the challenge we have with most things, which is financing is meaningfully more difficult to get. That's good for somebody who's well capitalized like us, because if we really like a project, we can choose to go all equity in the near term Mm -hmm. and then borrow when rates are at a more reasonable level. Mm -hmm. But it does affect your levered return, which is an important piece of what we consider when we buy an asset. So, um, but we like residential uh, for all the reasons that you said, homeownership is going to become more difficult. So we like apartments. I think we probably lean towards single-family rental that is developed for the purpose of being a rental, Okay. Um, as opposed to existing homes. Not to say that we wouldn't be active in, in purchasing existing mm-hmm. homes, but the purchase of existing homes has challenges associated with it that, that single-family rental, purpose-built single-family rental or build-to-rent um, doesn't have. You are adding to the overall supply of housing. Mm-hmm. That's a positive. Um, you can be adding at a reasonably affordable price point. Okay. Okay. And are you seeing, um, I'm curious around, you know, you mentioned that uh, home ownership kind of gets tougher in these circumstances. Um, are you seeing that pressure kind of then feed through to rents as well? Because presumably if there's a faction of people who can't quite afford to buy that first home, want to rent instead, that group grows in size. That's more people looking for the same stock of housing and upward pressure on rents. Is that a is that a consideration? To the extent that home ownership becomes more unattainable, rents tend to go up. Mm-hmm. Supply and demand, fairly straightforward. 
Um, it is a place where build to rent is adding new supply, and that can have a mitigating effect on that mm-hmm. circumstance. But you know, as a real estate investor, we want rent growth, right? We want reasonable rent growth. We don't want to be inhumane, but we want rent growth, just like we do in an industrial building or a retail uh, center. Um, and so the balancing act is, you know, we want strong occupancies with happy tenants at rents of rent uh, growth that are sustainable over time. So far, we've been able to strike that balance. I think as an industry, um, you know, the industry confronts questions of affordability that are difficult for it to answer. Mm-hmm. I'll make a plug for Bearings Affordable Platform. Um, you know, we are a significant lender to the affordable housing industry, mm-hmm. and that business presents opportunities for investors who might have an interest in a risk-mitigated uh, lending strategy that is enhancing to the overall supply of rental housing for uh, persons who need an affordable rent level. Mm-hmm. You know, we we think there's an opportunity for that business to grow over time. Yeah, that's great business. Okay, last question for you on residential. So just thinking about specific markets within the U.S., you mentioned some of the markets in the Southeast as being potentially uh, attractive, but I'm thinking as well around, okay, let's say we're heading into a recession here. Let's say, you know, we've already seen big headlines from companies across a variety of industries, you know, trimming workforces, et cetera, et cetera. Um, let's say we're heading down that path. Uh, what locations look, I guess, more insulated to you from that perspective? So I think that it plays to really the the strengths of the markets that we've already determined. They're markets that people want to live in. So they're, they're markets that tend to have favorable weather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. People say it's a little like the color of cars. It really does determine the sale of uh, a volume. But you know, having an hospitable climate is something that, that matters to people. I would say favorable business climate, so climates of all kinds. Look at a state, for example, like you know, Tennessee, which has very favorable tax uh, regime in favor of individuals, very mm-hmm. favorable uh, incentives for businesses to relocate, a well-educated uh, workforce, particularly in the Nashville area, if you take schools like Vanderbilt and others, mm-hmm. very strong healthcare infrastructure, growing population and the entertainment industry, all mm-hmm. coalescing mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. conditions there. That's a classic market that we want to be investing more deeply in. Charlotte has been one of those markets over time. Raleigh has been one of those markets over time. Austin has been one of those markets over time. Our job is to figure out what's what are the next ones, you know, what are the next mm-hmm. emerging mm-hmm. markets. Mm-hmm. And the one that I always point to is a place where we went out searching for a market and said, what are the things that are going to drive it is Savannah, mm-hmm. uh, Savannah, Georgia. Mm-hmm. We like many, have been very uh, significant investors in industrial. One of the questions that we had is, where can we identify markets for industrial that ought to have favorable conditions that should uh, enhance returns of assets in those markets? We looked at Savannah. We looked at what the Port Authority had invested in the port, Mm -hmm. the infrastructure spend in Savannah, in order to allow bigger ships and higher throughput of goods for import, really told us that the surrounding area around Savannah had to increase its supply Mm. of industrial. So we took a very hard look at that market, determined when do we want to get in, and started looking really before many others. We're not alone. There are other smart people. But that's an area that we put a ton of money into because there were conditions other than simple supply and demand that were driving outperformance. We look for the same thing in markets. You know, who's who's drawing businesses? Where are headquarters emerging? Where is technology? Mm-hmm. A greater percentage of the overall workforce. That's a really important thing mm. to us. 
and science-related employment and technology-related employment is a big marker for us. That's part of our brand as an investor. We try to follow well-educated workforces because it's where companies want to be, particularly where that intersects with favorable business conditions in a particular market, like North Carolina, like Tennessee, like Texas. Yeah, I, I, li- I like the um, the interplay there between... So first of all, I think that's a great example of just the the importance of doing your background work on the fundamentals. And, and it's why we employ a large research team here uh, to, to really get into the weeds, not only understand those kind of high-level macro trends, but down to the you know city block level uh, trends uh, in in all these different locations, but I I think you know one thing that just occurred to me that I don't know was obvious previously is that you know the work you're doing in industrial, for example, uh, let's say using your Savannah example, is directly feeding the work that you're doing on residential, on office, et cetera. Right? If 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 one segment of the market is set to boom, there's going to be ripples through all these other parts of the market. It's thematic. So we, we, we try to be thematic in the way that we, that we invest. We look for markets that are going to make sense for a lot of different asset classes where there's strong population growth and strong residential. There should be strong retail flow through after that, where there's strong job creation, there's strong spend, so it, it really is it really is thematic and our themes really relate to strong education, strong functional government, and technology oriented employment. Mm-hmm. And if you look at our portfolio, most of what we own is geared toward those macro themes. And you know, particularly over the past, let's say three to five years, most everything that we've purchased sort of fits into that. Yep. Very seldom do we stray from sort of those core themes? We monitor them over time, and we're always trying to look around the corner to say, what's next? You know, is it a Columbus, Ohio? Is it a Milwaukee, Wisconsin? Is it, you know, a Phoenix or a Tempe? Is it mm-hmm. what What are those? Who is putting together that combination of uh, factors um, that is going to lead to the emergence of the next note? So to stay with my industrial example, Charleston may be the next point. Mm-hmm. Charleston, which has been meaningfully behind Savannah in terms of infrastructure spend, um, has kind of gotten the joke that, oh, this is a meaningful economic mm-hmm. boost uh, to the area and is now taking steps to do dredging and to, and to, and to build infrastructure that can receive you know, super ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That really is what's necessary to make it at a competitive inbound port that can compete with Miami, now Savannah, and others. If they follow through with that, we are likely to follow that infrastructure spend mm-hmm. to Savannah mm-hmm. Industrial because we know that with throughput of goods coming off ships. They have to go somewhere. They have to be assembled. They have to be set for future distribution. And, you know, uh, relatively close proximity is an important piece of the puzzle. Well, there are worse places than Charleston and Savannah to go have to kick tires and do a research trip. So, True. Um, you mentioned life sciences, and I want to talk about office. Uh, office maybe has been the hardest segment of the market to call the last couple of years for obvious reasons, the pandemic, work from home, all that kind of stuff. Curious to get your thoughts on if the definition of what a high quality, quote unquote, office is, has changed over the last couple of years, and more generally speaking, how you and the team are approaching office today. You mentioned earlier, you know, do you look at investments that maybe are more defensive? Do you look at investments that are more opportunistic? Life science, which is an area that we've leaned into pretty strongly and that we continue to lean into, could be characterized as both. 
So life science is a really interesting example. It's defensive insofar as it really is dependent upon healthcare spend and healthcare infrastructure. Think about the development of uh, COVID vaccines. Um, a classic example of work that is done in labs, that has to be done in person, that cannot be uh, remotely executed. Mm -hmm. And all of that was done in buildings that are what you would call life science. Not only the, the lab science that led to the discoveries, uh, but then the testing that requires an incredible amount of technology to the manufacturing, which requires buildings that are built to very exacting standards of manufacturing specificity. All of that is to solve a healthcare problem that is pervasive. And COVID is one, the flu is another, cancer is a third, Alzheimer's, you name it. Insofar as those assets are geared toward healthcare, that is a countercyclical or a more defensive asset class. Having said that, these are office buildings that may have expenditures into them of $900 to $1,200 a square foot, very considerable sums. Mm. And so the returns that we require really are more value-add oriented returns. So it really does have both of those characteristics. Mm. It's kind of unusual mm. to find that coexisting. So life science has both of those characteristics. To answer the second question, has the definition of what's a high-quality office changed? Yes, it has. Mm. And, and I think that it's really stark. Today, well, first of all, I should say, I don't want to sound arrogant, this is evolving, right? I don't think anyone 100% knows mm -hmm. um, exactly what's going to make for a successful office building 10 years from now. But what I can tell you for, the, you know, for today and for the foreseeable future Office buildings must be tools for the attraction and retention of talent. If they are not tools for the attraction and retention of talent, they are less likely to compete in the market. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? They need to be current. They need to have uh, amenities that are attractive to an employee base. They have to be healthy. I think, generally speaking, they have to be ESG forward to attract a younger workforce that concerns itself with such things. They have to have strong opportunities for collaboration and public spaces and common spaces that really draw people in mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because the companies want to use them as a tool to bring people back, to engage their workforces, and to retain talent. Prior to interest rates rising and you know talk of recession, the greatest challenge faced by American business was the war for talent. And that is likely to reemerge as mm -hmm. the biggest single challenge to American business. The office building as a tool in that, in that fight, I think is going is, is to make current office buildings that are well amenitized and healthy really outperform relative to those that aren't. Mm -hmm. I think the office market is going to emerge as a have and a have not world. And that's great for those who have capital to deploy mm -hmm. into the haves. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's challenging for those who have to manage the have-nots. Are there any kind of examples that jump out at you that, that are really um, indicative of that trend that you're talking about? Um, so we are in the midst of a conversion of a life science asset in San Diego, 1155 Island. That was an asset that we had originally looked at as a potential office conversion uh, in San Diego. It was a building that had been abandoned by a for-profit law school. Um, it had the physical characteristics that it turns out are perfect for life science conversion. It had very high ceilings. It was overbuilt 
from a, an overall office standpoint. It's a very attractive building. It's forward from a, a design standpoint. It has nice outdoor space. We had that asset in our portfolio, and we saw a potential window to convert it to life science. So that really levered uh, our balance sheet because the asset already existed. Um, our relationship set because we were able to identify a partner with whom we could execute a conversion and our ability to deploy the capital and carry the asset for a prolonged period of time. We've now completed, largely completed the conversion. The leasing is ongoing. It's ahead of schedule. It's been very positive. And all of that really is informed by our research orientation. So San Diego is one of the top three life science markets in the United States. However, Life science has really existed not so much in downtown San Diego as the periphery, La Jolla, Hmm. Sorrento Mesa, other areas around San Diego. We made a bet that downtown San Diego would be the next node Mm -hmm. to emerge. Mm -hmm. Very good proximity to UC San Diego through um, public transportation, very strong residential infrastructure, um, and an expectation that others would follow Mm -hmm. if we were to exhibit leadership in terms of bringing life science Mm -hmm. downtown. It's turned out to be exactly that. Um, I won't say that uh, anyone has moved because of us, but there's a a million square feet of life science under development in the downtown area that didn't exist. We are ahead of the curve in terms of completion because our building already existed. Mm -hmm. So that was one where we probably were pretty good. We were also fairly lucky and others have followed uh, who have meaningful dollars to invest. Well, that's a great example. It really brings it to life and really cool to see the the development that's going on in San Diego. The last sector I wanted to ask you about is one that's, I guess, a little more niche, and that's uh, self-storage. So I don't know whether, whether or not to think of this as a cyclical business, a counter-cyclical business, having nothing to do with the cycle, or just representative of a bull market in Americans not being able to throw stuff away. I'm not sure which one it is, but tell me about what you're seeing out there in uh, self-storage. All of the above. Uh, we, we've been storage investors for, uh, for a while now, and, and we've invested in a handful of different ways. We most recently have uh, announced a deal with a, with a group in Charlotte that is in sort of secondary market storage, existing assets with some development, with some value-add characteristics where we think there's really interesting returns uh, to be had with execution risk that we think is manageable. It's really important who you're in business with, but storage as an asset class has been one of the best performing assets in real estate for 30 years. Mm. This isn't a new phenomenon. Mm. If you think about it, you know, yes, Americans can't throw their stuff away. I'm one of them. Uh, And I alone can drive meaningful demand for the storage (laughs) industry, but I think it is agnostic to cycle. As people move into apartments and have less room because they're not uh, as ready to move into homes, there's demand driven uh, by that. As aging baby boomers downsize, um, storage facilities emerge as a need uh, as people gather boats and RVs and motorhomes and things of this kind, storage, storage, storage. Mm. It's a really strong demand and pretty consistent over time. The other thing that storage is particularly good at is producing cash flow mm-hmm. and its efficiency in converting revenue to cash flow. The cost structure at storage is pretty modest and probably growing leaner over time. So you looked 25 years ago at a storage facility, there might have been three to five people working at any given point in time. Mm-hmm. There was a pretty hands-on touch. Today, a lot of the leasing is call center uh, oriented. 
Revenue management is pervasive in the storage industry. There is a very high degree of automation in terms of access. Uh, and so um, the efficiency of storage has gone up meaningfully, and CapEx is de minimis. You know, when a tenant rolls out of a storage facility, we don't change carpet. We don't paint the rooms. You know, we don't have to refresh the countertops mm-hmm. or the cabinets. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to build office finishes. Mm. All right? It's a square box. Mm-hmm. And it's the same square box that I rent today that I would have rented 10 years ago. Mm. We have to maintain the roof and the parking lots and the lighting and the security features. But the NOI to cash flow conversion, the net operating income to cash flow conversion is as solid in storage as it is in any. So we believe that strong cash flowing opportunities are uh, attractive. And so we are you know, investing in storage and you know, informing products to offer storage opportunities to our investors. And we expect that to continue. I think we will be diversified in our storage approach. We will work with a handful of really good operators that we get to know and like in whom we have great confidence. And, and so we think there's really interesting opportunity. And it does tend to be resilient in downturns. Okay. 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 So, so we've talked about, uh, I guess, maybe on the more defensive end, uh, some opportunities that we're seeing in in debt. We've talked about some of the sectors where you're seeing specific opportunities: build to rent, multifamily, the life science office, and self storage space. Um, maybe just to finish up, uh, and again, kind of going back to the beginning of this conversation where we're talking about, you know, getting defensive or being opportunistic or preparing for the worst. And you said yes to all of them. Let's talk about that last one, preparing for the worst. And so let, let's talk about distressed assets and, you know, curious how you're assessing that space uh, today, if you're already seeing opportunities or if you're, it's more something you're preparing to see um, if, if things get worse for the economy. So I guess what I would say about distress is I think and we think that there will be opportunities. It's not today. So I would say our overall transaction volume of regular way business has slowed meaningfully. And I think that that will continue. The message that we've given to our team from an acquisition standpoint is continue to look at opportunities, but the deals that we're going to do have to have characteristics that make them particularly attractive. Regular way deals... Um, we are going to be pretty cautious uh, about uh, approaching. We don't have to deploy capital into deals that don't make sense. Um, And so we're going to be patient. The opportunities are going to emerge through the passage of time. Uh, As time passes, as debt maturities emerge, as sellers adjust price expectations, we think that there'll be more transaction opportunity. And that opportunity will get better before it gets worse. So it's the reverse of the classic, you know, that gets worse before it gets better. We think that there will be more distress, you know, as we reach, uh, you know, year end 2022 into early 2023. You know, the art is to say, when do you find a deal that's really attractive and that you feel like you can make real money on? And you can't wait till you think you've timed the very bottom. I think the market's littered with examples of people trying to time markets. But what we do think is the market's still sorting itself out today. We're open for business, but we're not anxious to deploy capital mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. As opportunity presents itself, you know, we'll begin to sharpen our pencils and say, where can we act? Most important thing I think that we want to do and the thing that we want to distinguish us is we want to get the calls uh, from market participants who have need. We want to get those calls because they trust us. 
because they trust us to execute, because they believe that we will follow through on what we promise, and because we will treat them decently, even in difficult circumstances. I think that's our reputation. I mean, I think that's our area of strength. And it's a part of what comes from having the lineage of Mass Mutual. We're not here to rip the faces off of vulnerable counterparties. We're here to earn money for our investors, to do well, but to have enduring relationships with our counterparties that encourage them to call us at moments of need. And so that really is what the message is to our acquisitions people. Make sure that we get the call when the call comes. The best example I always give is, you know, when Wells Fargo needed X billion dollars to shore up its liquidity in the face of the global financial crisis, Mm -hmm. they made one call and it was to Warren Buffett. We're not Warren Buffett, but we want to be in a position to get the call, you know, that is where a counterparty knows that we will perform and knows that, you know, that we're going to act, you know, in our investors' best interest, create a transaction, you know, that creates a most favorable outcome. And that's a real balancing act. You know, I don't want to say we want to be the good guys, but we want to be the better guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a, a big piece of the puzzle. And that's who we are. That's our brand, mm-hmm. you know, and we're going to make money as we do that. But uh, I think if you do that, you have a longer enduring pipeline of opportunity, you know, than if you go uh, for the jugular at every turn. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Um, well, Warren Buffett said uh, it's important to be fearful when others are greedy and to be greedy when others are fearful. And I think you've given us some great context today on kind of where to be on that fear to greed spectrum. Uh, And I think your point is well taken just around uh, the idea of patience and, you know, watching this market develop, not being in a rush to deploy capital into deals that don't make sense. And that your team are in the somewhat luxurious position of being backed by a strong parent company and mass mutual, not to make this too much of an advertisement here, but um, to, to, to be able to take that long-term kind of through the cycle uh, approach. Cause it seems like that's where true differentiated returns can be made uh, over that long-term time horizon. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, everyone will say that they're not anxious to deploy capital, but if you're in a fund and it has a six-month from you've had six-month remaining investable life, mm-hmm. your incentive is to deploy that ca- mm-hmm. <laughs> is to deploy that capital. Yeah, yeah. You know, gratefully we're not in that position, and uh, um, you know, with respect to any of the vehicles that we have out yeah. there, and and you know, we're we're fortunate. And, you know, our objective is to be measured in our approach and to make good, smart decisions that endure over time and that create better relationships with participants in the market. If we do the right things over and over and we make good decisions, we're going to make money for our clients and they're going to come back to us time and again. That's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, listen, John, we started this conversation on uh, a negative note due to me reading out headlines, but I think we finished it on a positive note here. And, uh, you know, I think it's a realistic look at what's going on and and a great insight into how you and the team are seeing the markets uh, today. Um, But it's interesting to me that you're seeing opportunities out there and you expect to see opportunities out here. So uh, this has been really great for me. I hope our listeners learned a thing or two. Uh, I certainly have, but uh, appreciate your time today, John. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to episode number three of season seven of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, 
Make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.